On the morning of December the 1st, 1948, a body was found on an Adelaide beach in South Australia. The man was lying slumped forward with his head against the sea wall. He was well-dressed, wearing a suit with immaculately shined shoes, but he had no identification on him of any kind. In the almost 70 years since that December day when he was found, no one's been able to discover the man's identity, where he came from, what he was doing on the beach that day, or how he died. What can this unknown man tell us? Let's find out more. I'm Leanne Walker, and this is Wonder, the show that brings tales of wonder and curiosity from across the globe. For more information on this or any of the episodes, or for links to subscribe, rate and review the show, visit www.injustoneday.com forward slash wonder. Adelaide is the capital of the state of South Australia. It was established in 1836 and occupies about an eighth of Australia's total land area. With a population of about 1.7 million, it has a Mediterranean climate with warm summers and cooler winters. Until the Second World War, it was Australia's third largest city and one of the few Australian cities to not have a convict history. After World War II, an assisted migration scheme brought 215,000 emigrants of many European nationalities to South Australia between 1947 and 1973. So who was this unknown man that was found on the beach that day in December 1948? And what was he doing in post-war Adelaide at that time? Let's start with the information that is known. Tuesday, November 30th, 1948, had been a warm day in Adelaide, and in the evening, about 7pm, a couple, John Lyons and his wife, went for a stroll on Somerton Beach, a seaside resort a few miles south of Adelaide. As they walked towards the district of Glenelg, they noticed at the top of the beach a man leaning against the sea wall. He was smartly dressed and was lying on the sand with his head propped against the wall. They saw him raise his right arm, then let it fall back to the ground. They thought nothing further of it, assuming him to be drunk. About half an hour later, another couple, walking along the prom above the beach, noticed the same man lying in the same position. Looking on him from above, the woman could see that he was wearing a suit and his shoes were very well polished. Again, there was nothing about his behaviour that caused them to be alarmed. The next day, about six in the morning, that was Wednesday, December 1st, two men were out exercising their horses on Somerton Beach when they noticed a man lying in the sand. He had his head propped up against the sea wall near the stairs. Concerned, they went across, looked at him more closely, but they were sure he was dead. About half an hour later, John Lyons, the man from the previous evening, returned from a morning swim and noticed the people standing around further up the beach at the sea wall. Walking over, he saw the figure slumped in much the same position as the man he'd seen the previous night, with his head resting on the wall. His feet crossed, but this time he noticed the body was lifeless. John could see the man was dead and told the men with the horses that he would call the police, which he did. The riders went on their way. When the police arrived, they confirmed that the man was dead. There were no obvious signs of injury or violence. He had a cigarette lying on the lapel of his collar as if it had fallen out of his mouth. He had no obvious ID, no wallet or cash. 
The body was sent to the morgue at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. There, Dr John Bennett, with his initial investigation, placed the time of death at no earlier than 2am on the 1st of December. He noted the likely cause of death as heart failure, but added that he suspected poisoning. The man's clothes were removed, laid out and checked carefully. In his pockets he had an unused train ticket from Adelaide Station to Henley Beach, which is about a 30 minute journey west, a bus ticket from Adelaide to Glenelg, which is about 20 minutes by bus and closer to Somerton Beach, and it's south of Henley Beach, a pack of juicy fruit chewing gum, some Bryant and May matches, an aluminium comb and a pack of army club cigarettes containing seven cigarettes of another, more expensive brand called Kensitas. Interestingly, none of his clothes had any labels, apart from one piece of clothing. They all had the maker's label carefully snipped away. One trouser pocket had been neatly repaired with orange thread. The next day, a full autopsy was carried out, and this gave the police some more information. For a man of his age, in his early 40s, he was very athletically built. He had broad shoulders and a thin waist. His calves were very toned and his feet pointed with a slight wedge shape. The suggestion was that this was a similar build to say a dancer, or ballet dancer specifically. They confirmed that the man's pupils were smaller than normal. He was missing his two lateral incisors. His spleen was three times the normal size and the liver was distended with congested blood. The stomach contents were examined and they found a last meal and further blood in the stomach. This was consistent with poisoning. So samples of his blood and organs were sent away for specialist analysis and these came back with no trace of anything at all. No poison, cyanides, alkaloids, barbiturates or carbolic acid in his system. None at all. At the inquest, Thomas Cleland, the coroner, was told by another specialist that there were two deadly poisons that decomposed in the body in a short time, leaving no trace, digitalis and strophanthin. Strophanthin is a rare glycoside that's derived from the seeds of some African plants. Either of these poisons could have been used in this case and decomposed before the autopsy was performed. It was quickly becoming evident that there was more to this than originally thought. This was not a simple case of a man dying of natural causes on a beach. Police took a full set of fingerprints and circulated them across Australia, and then the English-speaking world, but to no avail. He was not known to anyone. Photographs were taken after the autopsy, and these were published in all Australian newspapers. This brought a lot of people forward hoping to identify missing relatives, but again, no formal identification could be made. This man didn't seem to exist in any official records, nor did he have anyone looking for him who was willing to come forward. By early January, the police were becoming concerned as they hadn't managed to develop any significant leads. Taking the view that he was not local to Adelaide, they decided to check if there were any personal belongings he might have left behind in any hotel, lost property, station or dry cleaners in the city. Their hunch paid off and on January the 12th, they found a suitcase in the left luggage at Adelaide train station. It had been there since November the 30th, the day before the unknown man's body was found. The staff couldn't remember anything about the person who'd handed the case in, as it was so long ago. The suitcase itself didn't provide any further clues, there was no name or address labels on it. Inside, there were various items. Of those, the main ones of interest were some clothing, which as before, the tags were missing, 
from all but three items of These bore the name Keen, K-E-A-N, or T.Keen, K-E-A-N-E, but it proved impossible to trace anyone of that name. There was a stencil kit of the sort that was found on merchant ships for stenciling cargo, and a table knife with the shaft cut down. He had a coat with unusual stitching that was later identified as American in origin, suggesting that the coat, and perhaps its wearer, had travelled during the war years. But searches of shipping and immigration records from across the country again produced no likely leads. The one piece of information in the case that did link directly with the unknown man was a reel of orange thread exactly like that used to stitch the pocket on his trousers. Because of this and the fact that the suitcase had been in the left luggage the day before the body was found on the beach and there was a train ticket in the dead man's pocket led police to believe this case belonged to the unknown man or Somerton Man, as he was being called. Despite all of that, the police were still no further forward. In April, it was decided that the body should be examined again, in case anything was missed the first time round. This time they brought in John Cleland, Emeritus Professor of Pathology from Adelaide University. His examination proved fruitful. Something had been missed before. Inside his trousers, Professor Cleland found a small pocket sewn into the waistband, possibly for a fob watch. Inside this was a small piece of paper with an elaborate script that read, Tamam Shoot. A journalist, Frank Kennedy, recognised the words as Persian and that they came from the last page of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. This was a collection of poems from the 12th century that had become popular in Australia during the war years. The words Tamam Shud were the last words in most of the English translations of the book and they meant it has ended or it is finished. This of course then led the inquiry down the road of a possible suicide and this scrap of paper being the suicide note. The meaning of the words made sense but where was the book that the paper was torn from? There was nothing like that in his belongings. By early June 1949 the body was decomposing and so a cast of the man's head and upper torso were taken and the body was embalmed. The unknown man was finally laid to rest on June the 14th, 1949. With a small ceremony, the body was buried, sealed under concrete in a plot of dry ground, specifically chosen in case it became necessary to exhume it. The headstone simply reads, Here lies the unknown man who was found on Somerton Beach, 1st December 1948. Flowers were intermittently found on the grave until 1978, although no one ever saw who placed them there. In July, the search for the copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, with a torn last page, finally paid dividends. A man, on hearing about the search for the book, remembered that in the previous December, he and his brother were getting into his car that was parked close to Somerton Beach. The windows of cars were often left open then. On the floor, he found a copy of the book. Both he and his brother thought it belonged to the other, and it was put in the glove compartment and thought nothing further about. Then, when he heard about the investigation, he went back and collected the book and brought it to the police. It was a match. This copy had the torn page at the back. Detectives looked for another copy of the book, but none seemed to exist anywhere in the world. They now knew it was published by a New Zealand chain called Whitcomb and Tombs, but an inquiry revealed that Whitcomb and Tombs had never published that book in that format. They did publish a similar version with the same cover, but it had a squarer format. 
No other publishing house in the world published anything that was a closer match. Where had this man got his completely unique copy of such a popular book? Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean took a close look at the book. Almost at once he found a telephone number pencilled on the rear cover. He dimly made out the first impression of some other letters, written in capitals underneath. Here at last was a solid clue to go on. The number belonged to a nurse who lived very near Somerton Beach. The police agreed to protect her identity and for many years she was only known as Jestin. Reluctantly, it seemed the nurse admitted that she had indeed presented a copy of the Rubaiyat to a man she'd known during the war. She gave the detectives his name, Alfred Boxall. Jestin had been an army nurse during the war and Boxall an officer. She gave him the book when they met in an army hospital and had inscribed it with one of the verses of poetry that she signed with her nickname, Jestin. At last, the police felt confident they'd solved the mystery. Boxall surely was the unknown man. Within days, they'd traced Alfred Boxall's home to Marubra in New South Wales. But when they got there, they found him alive and well, and he still had his copy of the Rubaiyat that Jestin had given him. It bore the nurse's inscription, but was completely intact. Decades later, Jestin would be revealed as Jessica Thompson. At the time of the investigation, Jessica was very reluctant to speak with the police, and they seemed reluctant to press her for details. She was living with a man whom she would later marry. She was very worried about a scandal arising. When the Alfred Boxall lead proved fruitless, it was decided that Jessica would need to be interviewed again. This time she recalled that sometime the previous year she couldn't be certain of the date. She'd come home to be told by neighbours that a stranger had called and asked for her, but there were no details apart from that. Police also showed Jessica the cast of the unknown man's head, and when she saw that, Detective Lean noted that she seemed completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance she was about to faint. It was clear to many that she recognised the man, but she continued to deny any connection to him. With Jessica refusing to give in any information of value, officers returned to the book and the lines of writing that they found on it. Examined under ultraviolet light, five lines of jumbled letters could be seen, the second of which had been crossed out. The first three were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X written over them. It seemed to them that there was some sort of code. They sent the message to Naval Intelligence, home to the finest cipher experts in Australia. The Navy decided the most reasonable explanation, based on the line breaks and frequency of occurrence of letters, was that the code was in English and that the lines are the initial letters of words of a verse or poetry or such like. So, where to next? They'd nothing further to go on, so to all intents and purposes the mystery rested. In 1958, the South Australia coroner published his final findings, saying, I'm unable to say who the deceased was. I'm unable to say how he died or what was the cause of death. The rare copy of the Rubaiyat was unfortunately lost by police in the 1950s and no matching copy has ever turned up. The brown suitcase was destroyed in 1986. Although the case is still considered open by the South Australian Major Crime Task Force, it has largely been forgotten. In recent years though, the case of the unknown man has begun to attract new attention. In 2010, retired Australian policeman Jerry Feltis wrote a book on the case which is very thorough. Also going through the police file on the case, Jerry Feltis stumbled across a neglected piece of evidence. 
a statement given in 1959 by a man who'd been on Somerton Beach. There on the evening of 30th of November, and walking toward the spot where the body was found, the witness, a police report stated, saw a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge. He could not describe the man. This was never followed up. Professor Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide has been investing this case for many years because he believes that even when a person has lost everything, including their life, they should still have their name. Professor Abbott spent a good deal of time trying to decipher the code using various modern scientific methods. He's enlisted the help of amateur codebreakers online with an active thread on Reddit, but there's still no answer to this. Today, of course, we have DNA examination that was not available to the police in the 40s. The unknown man's teeth could provide the best source of DNA, but requests to exhume the body to extract mitochondrial DNA have so far been denied, but Professor Abbott continues to petition for that. They do have a few hair strands to work with, as they're kept in the museum, but this has more limited information for them, although they are still working on it. Unless new evidence comes to light in the future or the code is eventually cracked, we'll never know exactly who this man was or what happened to him. So where does this leave things? Was it suicide? The note in his pocket lends itself to the theory, but if so, how did he do it? There's no evidence of poison in his body and no obvious vial or way in which he could have taken the poison himself. Digitalis and even strophanthin can be got from pharmacies, but never off the shelf. There's also a few more things that haven't been explained properly yet. The copy of the Rubaiyat that was the source of the paper in the unknown man's pocket can't be traced. It's never been published, it seems, in that format. Indeed, it's less of a book and more of a pamphlet. As the original had been lost, this makes it difficult to trace it any further. In his investigation, Derek Abbott had discovered that at least one other man had died in Australia after the war, with a copy of Omar Khayyam's poems close by him. This man's name was George Marshall, and his copy of the Rubaiyat was published in London by Methuen, a 7th edition. Inquiries to the publisher and to libraries around the world suggest there were never more than five editions of Methuen's Rubaiyat, which means that Marshall's 7th edition was as non-existent as the unknown man's Whitcomb and Tombs edition appears to be. Were these books ever published at all, or were they a special edition for something else? This brings us back to the nurse Jessica Thompson. In her interviews with police, she claimed to be married and gave her name as Johnson. Marriage records tell a different story. Jessica was dating, possibly even living with, a man named Prestige Johnson. Prestige had been married in 1936, with his divorce only being finalised in 1950. In 1946, Jessica became pregnant and moved in with her parents. The following year, she moved to Glenelg and took her future husband's last name. Her son, Robin, was born in July of 1947. Following Prestige's divorce, they got married. Jessica always said that her son Robin was Prestige's, and the two raised him as their own. Many believe that Robin was the son of the unknown man and Jessica. The driving force behind this theory is the apparent similarities of many rare genetic traits that the two men share. Derek Abbott claims to have obtained a clear picture of Jessica's son which shows both his ears and teeth. The picture was apparently pulled from a newspaper clipping. From the autopsy report, it was confirmed that the unknown man was missing his two lateral incisors. 
This is present in 2% of the population. Studying pictures of his ears, it's also apparent that his upper ear hollow, or Simba, is larger than his lower ear hollow, or cavum, again found in only 1-2% of the population. According to Abbott, Jessica's son clearly has both genetic traits. The odds of this being a coincidence are estimated to be between 1 in 10 million and 1 in 20 million. Robin passed away from cancer in 2009 and was cremated, but the University of Adelaide researchers have found a way to produce what's called phased DNA data. By subtracting the DNA data of Robin's spouse from the DNA data of his living descendant, they can reconstruct Robin's DNA profile. The results suggest that Robin had ancestral ties to the USA along his paternal line. Several of Robin's distant cousins currently live in the US, with the closest matches having roots in the Virginia area. Taken together with the fact that the unknown man was wearing a jacket and tie of US origin, the evidence makes a compelling case that the unknown man may have been an American. Not a definite result, but certainly one to add to the list. So, there we have it. Will the unknown man ever be identified? We don't have that answer today, but maybe soon. It's been 69 years since his death, and he seems to have taken most of his secrets with him to the grave, so it may be that we never know the full story. While Professor Abbott and other investigators continue to search for answers on his identity and the circumstances surrounding his life and death, one day, perhaps, the unknown man may become known once again. Thanks for listening. To get the links and sources for this episode, head on over to www.injustoneday.com forward slash unknown man. Keep in touch via social media or email hello at unjustoneday.com. But until next time, have a great day. Hold up. 